You start by figuring out who you want to be. And then the second part of it is reinforcing it on a daily basis. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it. Welcome, people, as you're coming in. Make yourself comfortable. And just a quick tour, if you would like to message me or my co-host today, Sharon, hit our faces, our profiles. Uh, You'll see when you hit our faces, uh, click on them and touch them. You'll see our profiles. To view profile, you can do that. And then you can also message us from within there. So feel free to send us messages. And we really encourage you to step up, ask questions, and to challenge us around this whole topic of change. So let's get started here. Today, we are going to be talking about the psychology of change because honestly, change is really, really hard. And one of the things we want to talk about today is why is it hard? I mean, it's our human inclination to say, we don't want to change. We like things the way they are. And and at the same time, when we're leaders, we are charged with taking and creating change. So we have to change things in ourselves to be able to lead that way and also change the people around us. And today, joining me, my name is Charlene Lee, and I am an author, speaker, and advisor. I write about strategy and leadership and especially on disruptive transformation. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Sharon Melnick. And Sharon, welcome. And please introduce yourself to everybody. I am so honored and delighted to be here with you, Charlene. I'm a business psychologist, and I do a lot of speaking and training about success under stress and resilience during change. And I think all of us have been exercising these muscles quite a bit lately, and I'm really excited to dig into it with you. Great. So excited about this because Sharon and I have been in this group of other leadership coaches for the past, I would say, nine months, 10 months or so now. Mm-hmm. And we haven't had a chance to talk about this particular topic. So I'm really interested in digging into it with you, Sharon. So Sharon, give us a sense. You've done so much research around psychology and around leadership and around change. Why is change so hard? How should we be thinking about it? Well, I'm going to answer that second, Charlene. And first, I'm going to take on, like, just from the beginning, one of the first things that you said, you know, that change is harder, that we want to do it. Um, And what we do know is that all of us have kind of an orientation or a wiring. And for some of us, we are oriented more towards sameness. And for others of us, we're oriented more towards difference or change or new and exciting. And what the research shows is that percentage-wise, it's like around 55% or so of people who prefer sameness, you know, routine, consistently, uh, consistency, you know, kind of things as they are now, plus or minus, let's say 10%, uh, 15% or so. And then there's about 35% uh, of people plus or minus kind of 15% or so, who really prefer difference. And those are the people, you know, you either are one or you, you know, are close to someone uh, and pressured, you know, by them. 
uh, who are like new revolutionary, you know, cutting edge. Let's do it differently. Let's change it up. And so it's something that we should just kind of know about ourselves from the beginning. And uh, this is a, a kind of orientation almost like we would think of as like a Myers-Briggs kind of style or a temperament or, you know, like some people tend to be more motivated toward things. Other people tend to be more motivated away from things. So, I mean, this, of course, is something that you can change and you can grow into be more versatile, but it's something to kind of know about yourself and give yourself grace about, right? And um, so if you are someone who maybe tends to be more sameness oriented, right, then that's okay. And you can still change, but you might want to be aware of, like, you might want to ease into change, right? Like you might want to focus on like, um, okay, if we want to make a change, but let's actually focus on all the things that are going to stay the same, right? And that we are going to have consistency about. And then you know, start to qualify that and, you know, and then start to introduce some new changes, but not really like expect yourself that you have to be one of these people who's like whole hog, just wave your hand and everything's going to be different. And you have to, you know, kind of embrace that. So that's just the first thing from the beginning that like, yes, change is hard for maybe even a majority of people, but for some people, they're like, bring it on. We're your change champions. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Let us lead the way. Get out of our way. You know, that's so interesting because my research, I look at disruptors, right? I'm looking at that 35%, those crazy yeah. people who'd love to like do different things, right? The, the change is something that they see as goodness. And, and I definitely saw that in the research too. And there was like a gradation. It's not like you you love change or you don't. There's like this whole spectrum of mm -hmm. how comfortable you are, how much do you want in creating sameness versus difference. So I, I definitely can see and can relate with that too as well. And that it can also change, but not. it's really hard to change that drastically into one direction or the other. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Right. And so now we can get back to the big question. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So um, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? And I mean, you know, we're going to be able to go in a lot of directions on this, but just at a high level, I think, you know, when it comes to, we say like, you know, change, but it's, that really means like each of us, you know, as a person, as an individual means that we have to do something differently or we have to adapt to a situation and, uh, you know, start doing different things. And that means that we have to have leverage over ourselves, right? That we have to get ourselves to think or act in a different way. And this has been, you know, kind of the challenge uh, throughout the ages, right? Of kind of like living up to our human potential. How can we do that? And I think that there's like many things that we can explore here. So just at, at a high level, I think that there's things that we want to be thinking about that happen before we're able to change. Like, what are the belief systems that you have? What are the values that you have? You know, are you able to be really clear on what it is, what it is that you want and how firmly have you anchored yourself in your future self? So there's things when it comes to change where you have to do things kind of before you're ready to, you know, are you even ready to start change? Then there's things that happen 
as you start or to be open to change or start to try to change. And then, you know, those are things like our own triggers that get uh, activated inside of us or environmental cues that are going to be very tempting (laughs) or path of least resistance to keep, you know, doing it the old way or maybe peer pressures. And then there's things that might happen after we start to change or that would be like a consequence of changing. So this might be like a fear of failure uh, or it might be a fear of loss of a job or important people in your life. So I think if we're going to be unpacking this, then we have to kind of look at the full spectrum of forces maybe that are operating on us. And that's when we can really appreciate that maybe there's a lot of things for us to be managing when it comes to change. I love that. Thank you for setting that up and giving us that landscape view. First of all, that they're different, we're wired differently, but also there's like before the change, during the change itself, and then after the change. I'm curious about the before. Let's let's tackle that first. Just sort of sequentially. Okay. I'm curious, are there ways that we can you talk about anchoring in your future self? Like how how do you actually prepare yourself, it sounds like, for change by doing a good job of doing that anchoring, understanding your beliefs and values. How how do you do that? And why is it so important to do it? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll focus on two aspects of this. So one I would say is you have to really know like the change that you want and more than just like, I want to be 20 pounds thinner or whatever, you know, something that's kind of like high level. Um, or, uh, you know, you have to really like know what is that going to look like? What is that going to feel like? And, um, and, and really have metrics, uh, for that future self. And then what you want to do is that you want to anchor that kind of in your own body or feel like you can already be that person. Like even if you're not yet 20 pounds thinner, right? But um, that you can have a sense of what it feels like and how you're going to move in the world and how you're going to, you know, react to temptations, et cetera. And you have to just like feel like you really want that. And that is very reinforced. And you have to like make a decision and really wait the evidence around it and really weight your commitment around it. Other, otherwise, it's kind of a wish. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, I have plenty of those I could share with you, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, 20 pounds thinner is, you know, one of them, let's just say. And, um, you know, you, you have to just like really be anchored in that future self and, and sort of already being embodying it and living into it. And then that's going to take that future self and start making it more of a a present self, even though the actual results might be lagging. So I I can totally relate to this because we all know that one of the hardest things you can do, hardest changes you can make is to lose weight. (laughs) You rationally know what it is. You know what you have to do, consume less, expend more for exercise. It's not rocket science and so few of us do it. And for the longest time, I was trying to lose weight. And and I even had like a cool motivation. I wanted to be able to have a healthier life and live longer, see my grandkids get boring, grow up and graduate from college. That wasn't enough because it wasn't anchored 
And then I switched my motivation to be uh, being an optimal health so I could achieve my goals here today. And visualizing that, being into that, to your point about seeing that and making the decision made a huge difference. And, and Sharon, you know this, I've been losing tons of weight over the past couple of months, but it was that final switch. And it seemed like such a small thing, but it made the hugest difference to have that switch happen. Well, this is such a good example, you know, of like something that goes on in our mind, which is so invisible, right? And has no materiality to it and is really just neurons firing in a different pattern can make all the difference. And, you know, one of the things that I heard in your story was, well, actually two things. One was that there was really a commitment, you know what I mean, that you made and uh, kind of a decision because a decision becomes a belief, right? Or a belief becomes a decision, I guess we should say. And also, you know, you took on the identity of someone who lives in optimum health, right? And that's really important. And that's what, uh, you know, kind of uh, what a lot of the research shows is that it's really important to take on the identity that you want and not just make it about behaviors that you do because as we'll talk about in the next section of kind of triggers, you know what I mean? That can be thin, right? In terms of your own willpower. But what you really want to do is kind of take on an identity that I'm, I'm someone who lives in optimal health, you know, or I'm someone who is a lifelong learner. And these are the kinds of things when you commit to that, then you show up in the service of that. And it's not about what you do only in the moment. It's like it pervades your being and your identity and it can give it a lot more weight. So you coach a lot of leaders about making these kind of changes. Is that something that they actively do? I mean, like what are some of the identities that leaders would take on to create that kind of change? It seems so simple, but yet at the same time, really hard to define that because I'm not even sure who I am today. I mean, talk about switching it. <laughs> How am I going to do that? What's that work? Well, you know, is that possible? one thing that I think is like a very relevant example these days is uh, really stepping into being an ally, right? And we can all be allies for others who might have a more marginalized or excluded uh, identity. And I think like that's an example of kind of taking on an identity. And it's, a, it's actually kind of a good example that now that you're bringing up a, a scenario like this, because it's like, you know, if you don't have that identity, then you might think, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Or, you know, I'm being a, a perfectionist or I feel ashamed that I haven't spoken up more in past situations. And if you don't have that identity, then you might just stay kind of stuck in that pattern, right? But if you have the identity, like I'm an ally, then it can sometimes like kind of take you out of yourself in the moment. You know what I mean? And it can tether you to your bigger picture commitment. And you could say, um, you know, I'm an ally and part of being an ally means um, making myself vulnerable and asking questions about things that I don't know about or being willing to you know, initiate a courageous uh, conversation, even if I have a sense that my colleague is going to get defensive about it. But because you have that identity, it's going to help you to be willing to do things and to kind of, you know, get above yourself in those moments. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. It does. It, and it really comes back to you having an idea of the person you want to be yeah. and being really clear. And, and that's the change, even just being clear about the change you want to make before you even start making it. It seems like a simple thing, but if I can't even imagine, can't even visualize it, how am I supposed to start making those changes? So it's not just about the behaviors. That's the thing I'm taking away from here. It's not just about me you know, changing my habits from here to there and about willpower. It's really about this mindset, this vision, this sense of identity, that if you have that really strongly fixed, then the behaviors will flow from that. Fascinating. I think that's right. And, um, you know, as long as we're still talking about the, like, the before, <laughs> you know, you make a change. And, and I was appreciating as you were talking, like, wow, that's why I haven't even gotten off the dime on certain changes I want to make, <laughs> right? I was appreciating <laughs> when you were talking. But, you know, there's another thing, and this is probably going to surprise you that I say this, Charlene, and I'm a bit surprising myself, but we're just going to go for it. You know, this maybe is less about, like, the losing weight kind of change. And it's more about some of the changes that have to do, like, if your company is going through a change or if you're thinking maybe of making like a job change and things where you're not uh, sure about the outcome and like whether you're going to land on your feet and whether everything is going to be okay. So here's another one of these like invisible beliefs that is so going to affect a person and their ability to embrace change versus whether they're going to have like what we call a fixed mindset, right? And just sort of feel like I have to hold on to what I have. And that really is about a mindset of kind of scarcity versus abundance. It's really about like your beliefs about even like really, really deep, like just your beliefs about how the world operates and why things happen, you know? So if you think that like things are just random and some people are lucky and maybe you don't happen to be, then um, you're not going to feel very in control of your circumstances. And you might feel like you have to kind of hold on to the job that you have now, just as an example, versus other people might have a mindset like they might have more of a sense of faith or trust in quote unquote in the universe, right? Or more believe like the world is abundance and life is in a flow and things happen for me and not to me. And a person who has that mindset is going to be much more willing to kind of go for it and, you know, start their own gig or, you know, you know, go for a role in another part of the company, even though, you know, they may not yet have all the skills for it, et cetera. Can you see the difference? Yeah, definitely. And and here's the thing is I have some really good friends, some colleagues, family members who live in that scarcity mindset versus the abundance mindset. And they know it, they see it, and they're not able to get out of it. Again, it's one of those things that you're wired this way. So if you if they can anticipate and see that change is coming, how can they prepare themselves? How can I help them? prepare and shift that mindset even just a little bit towards more abundance so that they're able to look at this change not with so much anxiety and avoidance and at least be able to look at it with realistic eyes to say well what does this mean yeah 
Yeah, it's tough, Charlene. We've all been there, huh? Like trying to help a stuck family member or even ourselves, you know? And here's where I think um, kind of one's overall belief system, like even spiritual belief system, like I was referring to, I think also intersects with our psychology and our own like beliefs about ourselves. Like I was coaching, you know, I I tend to uh, coach women leaders and I was coaching a, a woman who is a chief human resources officer at a company. And she was in that spin cycle, right, of kind of whether to stay or whether to go. Could she really bring um, uh, value and bring the changes that she thought, you know, uh, in her vision needed to be made? Or could, you know, could she not bring that? And, uh, you know, as we were talking it through, when we really kind of scratched the surface of it, what she got down to was a belief like that if she left, she would be a quitter. So that's an example of a narrative, an example of a story that she was telling herself uh, about the situation. And, you know, like you and I uh, as coaches or like Evelyn Rothstein, who you had on and I see in the audience, who's just this amazing, brilliant thinker, um, you know, as executive coaches, we might know how to help someone uh, through that and to really understand, to see the facts of it, to have perspective. And so when I helped her think through it, you know, was it really about her being a quitter? Or when she looked objectively at the situation, it was like, here's my vision for the organization and the transformation that I think needs to happen. And then let's look systematically, like, am I able to do that here? (laughs) You know, is this the right time and am I the right person? You know, sort of to look at it more objectively and let that algorithm determine whether it's right for you to stay. And this is not really about whether you're a quitter. Like she was just imposing that narrative on the situation and it was making her overstay and not make a change. That's so fascinating because you just like, what I just heard you say is that there's a process when somebody you're working with, being with, you know, in a relationship with is saying, I'm having a hard time with this. You know, I, 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 I don't want to make this change. Instead of going, oh, come on, you can do it. Instead of being a cheerleader, he could pause and say, what's going on? What, what, did he, what do you believe about this situation, mm-hmm. about yourself, about what the outcomes could be? And getting curious about that. So for you to have service that she was saying, I would be a quitter if I leave. That becomes an anchor that you can use as a starter point to say, like, well, let's look at this situation. Are you really quitting? Did you try it? I mean, so it's, it's a really interesting way to look at those underlying beliefs. As you were saying, these invisible beliefs. And I, I love thinking a lot of that way because we we're not even aware of what these limiting beliefs are, which keeps us, mm-hmm. again, from being able to make these changes. Because if we knew what they were, we would change them, but we're not that aware of it. So it's good to have a mirror like a coach or, or a friend or a family member to hold that up and say, what's going on here? Yeah, um, I think that's totally right. Yeah. If it's yourself, I mean, you were just saying, I, I, and I see it for myself too, like there were all of these changes I want to make and I'm not making them. Are, are there things that we can do to help us identify what things invisible limiting beliefs are? Any exercises that you see helpful for people to work through? Yeah. 
Well, you know, let's let's start to kind of systematically maybe go through more of these like forces, you know, mm. that are uh, at play. And I know, um, I know, like for myself, I can even share. And I, you know, I talked about this some uh, in um, that group of uh, leadership coaches that we were in, where you know, I was feeling very overwhelmed, like, you know, not alone in this um, and just, you know, really buried with so many things going on and I just didn't have the right help. And in order for me to really get myself out of that, it's kind of back to what we were saying. Like, I really needed to see myself as the CEO of a company as opposed to kind of you know, the, the person who does everything, you know, as, as a, as a kind of a one woman shop and, and with a couple of freelancers, you know, who would, would sort of help me. And it's like, that was a mindset shift when it came to identity, right? Like I really had to see myself. I really had to own like what I'm here for in the world and my purpose and how, how to use, you know, kind of, uh, what I'm here for and, and therefore to set up my life so that I would be freed up to do what we're doing now, right? <laughs> Is to teach and to share and to uplift, right? Because and um, and not to be bogged down. So that's a good example of like it had to start with that idea of my future self, and I had to really connect to it. And and actually, kind of when it comes to psychology, all roads kind of lead to Rome, and Rome is that fundamental belief in yourself right? Like, do, like, did I really believe that I was a CEO, that I could do that? You know, that um, if I took myself out of certain functions, that business would continue to flow to me, that things would get done, you know, to my standards, etc. And it really, at the base, it's not the only thing we're going to talk about, but at the base, it really started with that, like, did I believe that I could even do it? And that that's who I wanted to be and was. You know, a very wise friend of mine once said to me that the difference between anxiety and excitement is confidence. Same physiology. <laughs> same physiology, right? You have the same nervousness, but the difference is that, that belief, again, that you could do it. And, and not necessarily be successful, but confidence is like, I can do it and no matter what the outcome, I'm going to be okay. Versus anxiety, like, I don't know if I'm going to be okay or not. <laughs> If I go into the space. Um, it, and so it was interesting. I mean, you saw yourself as CEO. You had this confidence that you could be that CEO, even though it was completely new for you. Right? And it was a new experience, a new identity that you're putting on. You had that confidence that, yeah, this feels right. That's right. And then once, once I was able to embody that, it was sort of a decision or a commitment on some level. And then it was like, no matter what it takes, <laughs> no matter who I have to hire or no matter what I have to go through, like this is going to happen. And, you know, we can feel that from one another. Right. And it's all back to, you know, just what we were starting with, too, as a sense of faith or a sense of trust, whether it was in myself, whether it was a, a, a spiritual belief system that I had or a kind of a faith in the universe that the universe would support me. Right. And that identity. So. It's kind of an example of bringing together some of the things that we've been talking about at that at the beginning of the process. So these forces at play, what are there, are there other forces or things that we should be aware of? Because I do want to talk about the after part also, the, the consequences, the fear of failure and some other things. So that seems to be a big part too as well. 
Well, then um, sort of I think the next thing that we face once we start making a change, like so maybe we've committed to a new eating plan, <laughs> you know, or um, or maybe, uh, you know, something changes going on uh, within our organization, but we have that growth mindset. You know, we don't feel like, um, you know, we we feel like, okay, I may not have skills for the new role, you know, but I'm going to learn them. Um, and so then we're willing to put ourselves kind of our tires in the tracks of change. So once we start doing that, then we're going to be facing an onslaught of triggers, whether they're internal, like, you know, things that come up within ourselves where we doubt ourselves or in, in our environment. Then we're going to be coming up to holiday time <laughs> and there's going to be all kinds of temptations, you know, from the, you know, sweet potatoes to the, you know, the chocolate mousse pie. And we are going to be kind of confronted in a way, right? We're going to have external triggers that are going to be beyond our prediction, beyond our control. And we're going to have to bring that self to meet the environment. You know, I, I, I'm thinking about all these huge transformations that organizations are going through and asking people, okay, you're going to work in a different way now. You're going to work in a different location. We're going to be using all these digital tools. We're going to communicate in different ways. No more email, just Slack kind of stuff. <laughs> and you can commit to that. Again, like you were saying, tires in the track of change. But then something goes wrong, right? It all starts collapsing in on you. And there's only so much I think you can bring to the table. You can only take it on so much change at a time. And what I've observed is that organizations kind of expect you to go through this change as fast as possible without the sense that you may need more time, we need more space, more support, and even understanding what the triggers could be that could sabotage your change. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, for leaders to be putting more thought into what the possible triggers could be because leaders in the organization have been thinking and planning this change for a long time before it was ever communicated, right, to the people, to many of the people who are going to have to adapt to the change. And then, so even though people might want to be like, okay, I'm going to be a team player, I'm going to, you know, give it my best shot, and then something goes wrong, their, their IT doesn't work or whatever it is. And that's a good example of like an external trigger where a person then might have the attitude of like, see, <laughs> you know, it didn't work or see, they don't really care about us or I, you know, just can't handle this or whatever it is. And their resistant might be passive. They might sort of check out and disengage or their resistant might be active and they might, you know, actually do something to sabotage or go around or not, you know, participate, uh, et cetera. And that's kind of the organizational equivalent of what we might do when we're, you know, triggered by att attempting food. So we have to know how to manage that. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is you've got to anticipate what these triggers may be as a leader of the organization, but also that person going through that change and make those plans, make those mitigation plans, like eat before you go to the party, um, have the contingency plan if the technology doesn't work. If things don't happen on the schedule that you expected, then what do we do? How much the patients have to change? That's interesting. So identifying those triggers. So know the kind of change, commit to, so the first force is understanding 
and committing to that identity. I love this, tires in the track of change, and then identifying these triggers that could bring things down. That's so great. Yeah, and I think it's important when we're talking about triggers that it's not static, right? Like, you know, I mean, you teach us. I mean, change is a process, right? And people are going to go through different emotional responses to change. From the beginning, it depends on whether that change is perceived as within my control or kind of imposed on me. It's going to be impacted by the person's appraisal and whether they think they have what it takes to deal with it. It's going to, you know, be impacted by whether they perceive it as, you know, kind of positive or negative uh, to them. And then people, you know, kind of, they, they go through uh, the process and then they're going to come up. That's kind of what we're talking about. They're going to come up against scenarios where it's, it's not easy. And they're, you know, we know that change process where they, they might be in denial at the beginning, then they're going to be angry, then they're going to try to figure out how to accommodate to it. And so I think the triggers, uh, also are, are going to unfold over time. And this is where, uh, I mean, you know, you, you've helped us to create this, but I think, you know, the relationship that a leader or a manager makes with their team and, um, you know, making space for people to bring their grievances or things that are hard for them uh, to deal with so that a manager can help them problem solve as, as opposed to the person kind of going down the negative spiral, right? You know, just within their own head and then having disengagement or not kind of following through on the work or getting burnt out because they don't have a sense of control. I mean, that, that sense of control of agency is so important through that whole change process. That sense that I can determine when and how I am going to change. Um, and giving that space and holding that space for people is such a key part. Uh, I, I've been really struck by, uh, maybe deterring us, um, taking us on a detour here, but I was really struck with the pandemic, how there was so much talk about how we were in a liminal space. Uh, liminal being the Latin for threshold, how we're going from the old world pre-pandemic into the new world, but we were in this limbo in between. Uh, and so we had to like wait for the new world to evolve. And that liminal space actually was this really interesting time. We all remember being at home, like, what are we going to do with ourselves now? We're going to make bread. I started like, paying my numbers. I reconnected uh -huh. with friends that I hadn't talked to in decades. Uh -huh. And it became this and the liminal space is kind of scary, but it's also a highly creative time when you're exploring that identity. And it struck me that we don't do that inside of organizations or within our leadership, that we don't create this space for change and look at it, as you were saying, as a process. And, um, it, and you know, liminal spaces, when you intentionally create them, to acknowledge we're going from one state to a new state. And while we're doing that, where we're making that change, we're going to feel a little bit unsettled. But because we're here with each other, because we have agency, we can explore that and be able to own it and do the process that you want. I'm curious, have you seen um, leaders creating liminal spaces or using that phrase or that kind of space creation from psychology into the organization or into leadership. I think that's beautiful. I haven't heard that phrase. To me, it's new. It's a Charlenism. 
Um, and, you know, I just want to pick up on a thread that you're saying that I think is really important, which is that, you know, we've framed this whole discussion of kind of like change is hard. And for many people in organizations, it feels like change is like, you know, announced by someone else. And then we have to kind of come on board with it. It's like we don't feel it's in our control. But, you know, each and every one of us, we have more power than we think, right? And that actually, you know, this is where that whole idea of kind of like an opportunity-seeking mindset, right, can uh, help us to take advantage of these liminal times. I mean, there's plenty of people who kind of stepped up and stepped in, you know, during this time. And because of it are now, you know, much more in leadership positions. And like, maybe it's on my mind because I'm giving a training tomorrow for, um, ERG leaders at a diversity summit, but I think like um, leaders of business resource groups or employee resource groups that are identity-based are maybe a good example of people who um, have been able to really step up and who have um, kind of taken responsibility and um, really come forth and played a really important role as companies and communities are engaging in um, more explicit and aware uh, reckonings uh, around a sense of belonging and inclusion in their cultures. And, you know, like the heads of ERGs have been the ones who have been trying to, you know, translate and be the voice of their identity group and have been making suggestions uh, or have the opportunity, right, to be making suggestions uh, to their organizations about how to improve their culture so that people uh, want to stay there and not resign. And so I think it's a, an example of how change can be an opportunity. And each and every one of us can have that mindset. I think we're definitely seeing some people who maybe have been wanting to leave the big cities, <laughs> have been wanting to, you know, move to, uh, to, you know, a more rural area and or do something different. People have been kind of taking advantage of this opportunity. And I do think that each and every one of us, we have more power than we think. We have the power, like you're saying, to um, kind of decide how we're going to go through uh, this time. We have a power of kind of like the narrative that we're going to create about it. And we have the power to um, kind of use this time as an opportunity to share our powerful truths, to grow our platforms, uh, to persuade. And I think we want to be thinking of it like in an excited way like that as well. Yeah. I mean, all I know is like this great resignation, right? Where four or five million people are quitting their jobs every month. That That is like the biggest form of power being exercised I've seen in, in decades. I want to pause just a second to see if, if you, again, encourage you, if you have any questions or you have a comment, uh, you can see in here, you can raise your hand and I can invite you out to the stage or feel free to message me. And uh, with a question, if you're feeling a little shy, and I'm happy to ask and, and address that question too. Sharon, were you going to say something? Um, well, just in the meantime, while we're waiting, we welcome uh, your comments, uh, experiences, and questions. But, you know, I think another thing that we haven't talked about is the role of uh, kind of support or connection and other people. You know, how there's that like aphorism, like your, you know, your success is at the level of the five people you're closest to, or I'm butchering it, but something like that. And, uh, you know, that really matters as well to like surround yourself with people who 
have changed, are changing, you know, have this uh, kind of a mindset and not sticking around people who maybe are stuck uh, where they are or who don't believe that they can make a change in the way that you're uh, wanting to make. And this has even been formalized. Like um, there's people in the um, British National Health Service who have been studying like how people make changes. I think one of their books is called Nudge. And I think one of the things that they found is like one of their biggest uh, takeaways is when people see that other people around them are making a change, it's very, it's one of the most motivating uh, things. So like when they were trying to get people in hotels to not drop their towel on the floor, but rather like, could we just change your towels at the end of your stay? And so, you know, there's like a little card when you go to a hotel and says, you know, if you would like to, you know, save the planet or whatever, like, please just, you know, don't drop your towel on the floor or whatever. And I don't know what kind of compliance that they got, but I, I think the idea is that it wasn't too high. But when they changed it and they said, again, I don't remember the specifics of it, but it's sort of like X percent of people, high percentage, you know what I mean? Or, or the people in all the rooms around you were doing this or whatever. Then it was like much more motivating. Like nobody wants to, they also did this with people on their electric bills uh, and, you know, switching over to like a more green. And when it was like, you know, these, you know, eight out of 10 people on your block have also switched. People were like, oh shoot. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be the like, you know, the loner, you know what I mean? He was like, right, exactly. That's always a great thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm a psychologist, so I'm all about like the individual and what they could do. But really, you know, peer pressure works. <laughs> so we have a question here. So Holly, thank you for asking this. How do we envision our future self? Is it a daily ritual? Any tips would be appreciated. And also some appreciation. Great session. I've had so many aha moments already. So I'm so glad to hear that you're getting something out of this conversation quite a bit. But how do you figure out your future self? Is there something you should be doing every day? Um, any tips? Yeah. Well, I think that you start by figuring out who you want to be. And then the second part of it is reinforcing it on a daily basis, right? So the first is um, maybe a bit more freeform. And I think that you could write out like, you know, a day in, like, there's a few different ways you could do this. You know, you could do like a day in the life. Uh, and what do you want that to be like from the moment you think you wake up? Like, what do you want to be thinking about? You know, what do you want to be doing at the beginning of your day? And, you know, so on for the rest of your day. You could also be just describing you, like maybe you might think of it in terms of, you know, goals or in identity. And, but the, the idea of it is that you really want to get like 3D sense around, like, you know, sense oriented with it. So um, once you start to have an idea, then really like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like when you interact with other people? Um, how do you act? And in the easy situations and in the hard situations, right? And really, um, really just have a really good idea what will be the metrics. Uh, and then you can start to like, embody that, you know, really like feel as if you're, you know, already that person. And then on a daily basis, yes, you want to do things to uh, reinforce that. You want to upload kind of that person, you know, as you are going through your day, you want to put together a more, you know, people have all kinds of different morning rituals, but you want to maybe revisit uh, your goals or you want to kind of re-embody being that person. And you want to try to anticipate what the obstacles might be so that you could try to mitigate them. You could talk to people who you're close to and 
ask them to help you stay accountable. You can put yourself, like we were just talking about, you know, in situations or amongst people who are similarly growth oriented and who will inspire you and kind of keep you in that vortex of momentum. These are the kinds of things that you could do when you're really serious and you're ready. And I think you are, Holly. Yeah. So that was what was interesting um, when you said that putting this in 3D, I, I came back from this retreat back in August know, really motivated. And the first thing they did was, you got to put together a five-year plan. I'm like, I got a five-year plan. They go, no, you have like a five-year to-do list. That's not a five-year <laughs> plan of how you want to be. And um, so they said, create little movies, little vignettes, little scenes of what your life would be like in five years. And because when you can sort of run that movie in your mind, sort of what you were saying at 3D, you can play it over and over again to reinforce it. Uh, and then, you know, what are the steps you have to take today? And then make sure you're clear about what those steps are every single day to make that happen. And it's hard to stick with it. I think that's the hardest part of any sort of daily ritual. You can kind of do it for a week and then you do it for like four days out of the next week. <laughs> Eventually just kind of drop it. Um, but that that um, that vignettes, uh, th- those have really helped, I think, to your point, being really clear about what that could potentially look like. And it's not just one. It's a bunch of them all together and some will resonate more some days than others. It's interesting. I think when you were talking about, you know, becomes monotonous or something, like maybe people could have a suite or a repertoire of things that help them kind of get into that state or kind of into that mindset, even if it's not the same strategy every day. But maybe you have a suite of them and as long as you're doing something that's going to keep you in that momentum and energy, then you're good. I want to make sure we talk a little bit about the post issues, like after the change happens, our fears. So before I sort of like beliefs, it's almost like, well, what happened after this change? And all these fears of loss, of failure. Uh, My big one is shame, right? How do I deal with that? And it's definitely, I know in the past, kept me from making change because of what I thought could happen, all the negative things that could happen after change. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's so often like what keeps many of us, myself included, like even just from getting off the dime, you know, to kind of get started. It's sort of, and, you know, it's like me as a perfectionist, like if I think it's not going to be perfect, like I'm not even going to start it, which has really served me well, let me tell you. (laughs) Not, not, you know. And um, so I think it's the way that we like from the very beginning, we kind of play it out in our mind, like how it's going to end, or right? And even though we actually want the ending, here's where the psychology of it is really relevant. Because we also have like multiple layers to us and we have competing agendas to those layers. So we, um, you know, we might really, for just take our example of, we might really want to kind of get fit and lose that weight. But there might be a part of us that is concerned that if I do that, my buddies who I go out for whatever, you know, kind of pizza and, you know, whatever kind of fun, um, indulgent eating, that I'm not going to be able to have that kind of connection with that and them anymore in that way or that loose, you know, kind of uh, way of being. And so, That's a really good example of kind of 
fear of success as well as fear of failure. I mean, there's so many fears that we have. And so sometimes people are afraid of, uh, you know, they have a kind of a ceiling in their own mind of success or earning level because they're afraid. Um, you know, they've internalized messages growing up, like don't get too big for your britches or, you know, what we said about people who have fancy houses when we were growing up or any of those, right, those kind of money-based beliefs. And those definitely are the kinds of things that hold, especially entrepreneurs, back from really fulfilling on their potential. And when it comes to change in an organization and, you know, lots of people going through change, this is definitely one of the things that leaders want to be the most sensitive about is that for people who are resistant, there's usually some perceived loss that's going to happen. So maybe people really enjoy the camaraderie of their current team. Another really relevant example is people fear that they might lose being in a role that they feel competent at, right? And they're going to have to move into a role that they maybe don't feel that they're already well-equipped for, and it's more risky. For them, right. like one of the big financial institutions brought me in to train uh, an HR team uh, last year because this was a team, a number of whom were trained like more transactional kind of work. And they really wanted the HR function who was kind of leading change, you know, um, even though change has to be throughout the organization, but they were like some of the people rolling it out and leading it. Um, they wanted them to be more strategic and more of these kind of in inspirational kind of leaders. but. Many of the people didn't think of themselves as that. They didn't think they had that skill set. They were more, you know, transactional kind of in the skills that they had. And so that's a good example of someone who might be resistant, right? Because they fear, feel like they're asking me to do something that I don't know how to do yet. And I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. And so I fear that I might fail or I fear that I'm not going to have the same more comfortable or more assured way, like what I've been doing, I know, you know what I mean? What kind of response or performance review I'm going to get. And so that's an example of kind of like a loss of perceived like competence or good performance reviews or praise, et cetera. That's definitely going to make someone resistant. So I think, you know, that we definitely want to support people to be aware of, um, you know, the losses that they have, especially in interpersonal losses, like maybe if they, you know, like I was saying, are more successful, they're not going to be able to stay with their partner or their family is not going to relate to them anymore. Same thing in work environments. And those are definitely things that you want to kind of suss out with someone and really help them to know, like you said, you know, you had a, a, a fear of, you know, kind of being shamed, like that was really good insight. And you would, I think, want to talk with someone and help them to really understand so that they can then evaluate, you know, or be able to problem solve that. And does it even have to mean that? Right. It's so interesting because when you can put a name, you can identify what that loss is, then you can address it. It's when it's not being addressed or identified or even aware of, like, I just don't want to change. Well, what's underlying that? What's going on there? And you just talked about so many things that actually don't have to do with the change itself. It's I, I totally social connections, right? I, I think about the reason why people feel disrupted in organizations is because the relationships that 
they knew how everything worked, how I related to you, where the power was. It's all thrown up into the air. Like, and until we get that settled again, we're just going to feel discombobulated and disrupted until that happens. <laughs> so the sooner we can put those structures back in place, the sooner we can put that clarity and that confidence and that sense of security, we're still going to be just floating and being comfortable. Again, and yeah. for a lot of people, that's not a good place to be for most of them. Yeah, totally. And I, I used to teach a kind of like a really simple, just kind of exercise for people to do. It's kind of kitschy, but I, I just um, thought of it. Uh, it's called I Win at Change. So it's sort of an acronym for like I-W-I-N. And if you even just like write out, you know, like, for, like a four column chart and the, the first I stands for like, what are the implications of change? And just write down all the things that are going to like change or be the same. Like what are just all the implications that are reeling like you know, pinballing through your head. Just get that out in the first column. And then the second column, W, when it changed, you know, stands for written inventory. And this is for your eyes only. Like totally, you do not have to share this with anyone, but just get it all out. Like the good, the bad, the ugly, like everything that you fear, that you, you know, like are angry and pissed off about, that you worry about, that you're happy about, like just blurt it all out and just like keep that as a running like open column and just keep like dumping there just so you get it out and you kind of see it, just like you're saying, be aware. And then the I in I win is to take individual responsibility. Like, what can you control? You know what I mean? What can you take responsibility for? And then all the things we've been talking about, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> that you can control and master in yourself. And it starts to put you in a more empowered place. Um, and then uh, the N in I win is a new learning plan. So given that, you know what I mean? What, what are maybe new skills that you learn, need to learn, new mindsets, new emotion regulation? And it just sort of really kind of simple, but helps to walk you through from the you know, mental swirl into kind of a, a path forward. That's great. So I win. That's a great analogy. We just have a few minutes left. And while we're waiting, I just want to encourage you and tell you about a new feature inside of a fishbowl, which is that when you look at somebody's profile, now you can also follow them. So I invite you to follow Sharon uh, and all the work that she's doing. Follow me as well as we are here on Facebook posting and then having these conversations. Uh, but use that to follow some of your favorite people who are commenting and speaking to you as well. Any last thoughts, tips, advice that you want to share about how we deal with change? Well, I guess the final thing um, that I would say is that, you know, living in today's world can be stressful <laughs> going through change, uh, which usually has a lot of, you know, implications to it, can be stressful. And what we do know is that kind of there's two parts to our nervous system that help us like navigate or respond to change. And one is kind of like your on button, which helps you like respond and kind of take in the information and do something with it. The other is your off button, which helps you kind of relax and replenish. And today we're supposed to have balance, of course, between our on and off modes. Today we're only on, we're always on. And it has implications because when you're in this kind of what we call sympathetic nervous system mode, everything gets filtered through the emotional centers of your brain. And this is our survival brain. It helps us be on the lookout, you know what I mean, uh, for threats in our environment. And so literally you're going to be taking in and filtering all the information and the communications from your company through the lens of, and what does this mean about me? <laughs> and like, and what do I need to be scared about here? And uh, so it's really important. And, and it's also all about like just what's right in front of you that you have to deal with now. 
So it's really important to learn the tools to kind of be balancing your on and your off button because your off button is like where you, you know, see the big picture and you can understand that this is a process and it will unfold. You can have more trust and discernment, you know. You can, you know, just be more objective about the situation, which is bringing together, right, like everything that we've been talking about as a theme uh, today. And for people who want to get started on this, I actually, um, my book, Success Under Stress, will give you some tools for how to do this. But I think stress is like relevant here because as long as we're kind of in that pushing and always on mode, then we're not going to help ourselves when everything is being filtered through that fear response. And it's only when we're able to kind of press that off button, have a moment of calm, see that bigger picture, have discernment that we're going to be able to, you know, really practice some of the strategies we've been talking about today. And Sharon, I find myself taking a deep breath, a cleansing breath to center myself when you say those kinds of things. Because I, I so agree. We, there's this expectation now that we respond immediately, that we, to be a good leader, to be a good worker, employee, uh, we, we just got to be performing all the time. And it's this acknowledgement, I think, more and more, especially since the pandemic has hit, that we can't do that and be in peak performance. We can't do that and be competitive and continue to change and, and manage that over time. That like an athlete, like a world-class athlete, they recover, they plan their rest and recovery as much as they plan their exertion and their training. And so... So some great advice there to make sure we're pushing the off button in order to get that perspective, to make sure we're checking our beliefs and our fears and um, preparing ourselves for this change, the, the inevitable changes that are going to have to happen. Sharon, an hour just went by. It just flew by. <laughs> we are at totally. the top of the hour again. Um, I just want to thank you so much for bringing your knowledge and expertise and, and sharing that with us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Any last words, Sharon? Yes, I want to say um, that it's not often, and I wish this for every one of you uh, who are listening to be able to share the stage and in conversation with one of your role models. And uh, so thank you for the opportunity to do this uh, tonight. And I'm just so excited to listen to the rest of this series and learn more from you, Charlene Lee. And Sharon, where can people find you? Uh, I guess SharonMelnick.com and the book Success Under Stress is probably a place to start for this topic. Okay, fantastic. And you all can find me at charlenelee.com. Um, and, and Charlene, can I just interrupt with one more thing, actually? Yeah, can I say maybe the easiest thing for people who are listening is let's connect on LinkedIn. That's probably even better. So I'm Sharon Melnick, uh, PhD on LinkedIn. That's really, I think, the best way for us to continue the conversation. Yeah. I look forward and to connecting with you. Same, exactly. And Again, thank you, Cher, for joining us. Thank you all, and have a great evening, day, uh, morning, wherever you are. Okay, take care, everyone. That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and, who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon. <laughs>